Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Second World War, like on the tail end of the Second World War, there was a battle in a place called Okinawa in Japan. However you say that, I guess if you were Japanese you'd say it differently, but let's say Okinawa for today. At that battle, there was a young man and his name was uh, Desmond Doss. And Desmond Doss was a very small man and he was quietly spoken, and he was very gentle. But he was also a religious man. And I say religious because he was a Seventh-day Adventist. We wouldn't categorize a Seventh-day Adventist as a Christian if he holds to Seventh-day Adventist teaching. So if you want to talk about that with me, that's fine. You, we come talk later. So I'm not saying he was a Christian, but I'm saying he was a religious man. And because he was religious... He didn't want to bear arms in the Second World War. He didn't want to shoot anybody because that would go against his conscience. So he became a conscientious objector. But he was a different type of conscientious objector because he said, I'm a conscientious cooperator. I want to be trained. I want to go into battle. I want to become a medic, an unarmed medic, so that I can help people who are injured in the war. So, of course, all of the soldiers that were training with him, they, at first, they just laughed at him. They said, ah, get lost. You know, you, we don't want you here if you don't want to carry weapons. What use are you? You're absolutely useless on the battlefield. And as he trained with him, you know, he was useless at climbing. He was useless at everything he did. He was really a useless member of the team. And the people tried their best to get him discharged from the army on the basis of mental instability because a guy who wants to go into the war unarmed must be crazy but he insisted he just kept going and he kept going and they ridiculed him they abused him they excluded him and eventually he finished his training and they couldn't believe that he actually finished his training they had to acknowledge that he'd finished his training even though he had to train harder than everybody else because they didn't trust him. Eventually they ended up in Okinawa after another mission in Guam. And there in Okinawa, they landed on a beach, you know, something like Normandy. And as they, all the soldiers came in on the beach, there was a cliff on the other side of the beach. So before they could start fighting, they had to climb up with ropes to the top of the cliff. And then once they were at the top of the cliff, they had to run into enemy fire in order to take that ground. So the Japanese knew that these guys were coming. 
And as soon as they started coming over the top of the cliff and they started moving toward enemy positions, they came under heavy fire. And this guy's battalion came under heavy fire, Desmond Doss's battalion. And many of his friends were shot. Some of them were killed. Many of them were badly injured. And he ran into, straight into enemy fire with his, with his fellow soldiers, those who hated him, those who excluded him, those who mocked him, those who abused him and beat him. He ran into enemy fire with those men. And as he ran into enemy fire and he saw his friends going down one after the other, some killed, some badly injured, he stopped to help them. The other friends who were still fighting... They were saying, leave him, man, leave him, leave him, he's going to die, leave him, you can't save this guy. And he said, no, I'm going to save this guy. And he said, just one. And he managed to get that guy, he bandaged him up, he dragged him all the way back to the cliff, and single-handedly he let that guy down with a special knot that he had developed. He let him down with a rope to the bottom of the cliff so that the, the medics at the bottom of the cliff could attend to him. And then he turned around and he went back into enemy fire. And he found another one of his friends. Well, I say friends because he had no friends. These guys who hated him and beat him and excluded him and mocked him. He went and he picked up another and he dragged him all the way back to the cliff. And he bandaged him up and he let him down the cliff on a rope. And he did that for two weeks while those guys were facing enemy fire. During those two weeks, Desmond Doss managed to rescue, the figures are not accurate, but somewhere between 50 and 100 of those friends of his who mocked him and abused him and excluded him and beat him. 50 to 100 he let down. At the end of those two weeks, the Japanese threw a, a hand grenade at him because the Japanese tried to pick off the medics so that when they shot people, there would be nobody to help them. The Japanese threw a hand grenade at Desmond Doss, and he got quite badly injured by the shrapnel. Some of the shrapnel went into his lungs, through his chest wall. While he was trying to get back to the cliff with another of his friends, the Japanese shot him in the arm and broke his arm, so he couldn't let the last guy down on a rope. There's a, movie, there's a movie that's been made about this. I'm not telling you the name because it's a pretty gruesome movie. If you really want to watch the movie, you can come ask me. If you don't already know the story, you can come ask me and I'll tell you the name of the movie. So there he has a broken arm. And he saved 50 to 100 of his teammates, his fellow soldiers. And then some of his fellow soldiers, because he had started becoming a hero going into enemy fire, rescuing his enemies in, on his own side and letting them down the cliff. And he was totally exhausted. There he lay with a broken arm bleeding from shrapnel injuries. And some of his friends who had survived, they came and they let him down the cliff so he could recover. So he, he managed to survive that battle. And when he went back to the United States, it took him five years of medical treatment in order to recover from some of his injuries. And some of those injuries were permanent. He died in 2006, so he didn't die that long ago. And even until the time he died, he was disabled by some of those injuries he received in the war. 
The time came after he went back to the United States where the, the President of the United States came to him and awarded him the Congressional Medal, medal of Honor, which is a medal that a military person can receive for outstanding courage and lack of fear at risk of his own life that was above and beyond the call of duty. He risked his own life and he went into enemy fire in order to rescue people who were his enemies. And I listen to that story when I see something of that story. I wonder, what is it that draws me to stories like that? What is it that while I'm telling you the story, you say, wow, what a guy. What is it that does that? Isn't it because there is always glory attached to righteous suffering. There's glory attached to righteous suffering. Isn't that what it is? We see a guy going into battle, he does something absolutely amazing, and there's glory through his suffering, through the misery that he experienced, through the danger that he put himself in, through the sacrifice that he made. His whole life was messed up as a result of the fact that he saved those 50 to 100 men. There is glory in suffering. And I would say there's glory in righteous suffering. Of course, there's no glory for a person who does something stupid and destroys himself and then he suffers. That's not a glorious thing, is it? There's glory in righteous suffering. And I want to just say that again and again and again today. There is glory in your suffering. There's glory in righteous suffering. And maybe as you and I look at our own suffering in this world, suffering takes so many different forms, doesn't it? As we look at this Desmond Doss, as he goes into the war, and as he struggles after the war with all of those injuries, difficulty breathing, he had tuberculosis because he got shrapnel inside of his lungs and they did operation after operation to try and get his life back to normal. But he suffered until he died. Some of you in this church, you know what it's like to suffer in relationships that have been messed up. People that you know and love who've turned against you or troublemakers who are spreading gossip about you and there's pain, there's suffering in your life and you don't know how to get out of that. There's suffering because of an ongoing, ongoing health crisis. Those of you who know me well, you know that my stomach plagues me all the time. And the most, often th most frequent thing that I've said to people who ask me how my stomach is, I say, I'm looking forward to getting a new one in glory. And that's it. I'm going to get a brand new stomach. It's not going to plague me anymore. 20 years, my stomach has been bothering me. That's suffering. And I know that there is glory attached to righteous suffering. You respond in a godly way to suffering, and there's glory in that. Praise God for that. Some of you might be struggling because you're trying to gather just enough money to meet your needs on a monthly basis. Pay your rent. Put food on the table. Clothe your kids. Keep your car going or paying money for transport just to move around. Some of you might be struggling with ongoing transport problems. And all of the, the mission it, it is to find a taxi to take you somewhere and the taxi doesn't fill up. And eventually they might shove, shove you off into some other taxi or the guy says, Oh no, I'm not going with so few people. And then you might need to do that again and again. Two, three stages just to get somewhere. And then it's the money, forking out money every time you need to move. You might be suffering with the pain of being attacked, mugged in the streets, robbed, assaulted, beaten. 
so many people in our church. And, you know, I'm no stranger to that. We all know in this church what it's like to be mugged and assaulted and attacked and, and thieved, robbed. You might be struggling from something like this, attacks and being robbed as an isolated trauma in your life. Or you might be struggling with this as an ongoing thing. You might be living in a family where you are beaten on a weekly or daily basis. You may be subject to abuse, people with their words, people physically abusing you on a regular basis. You may have grown up in a home where you were abused as a child and you carry painful secrets with you wherever you go and there's nobody that you can tell. You're ashamed to speak about it because of the social impact it's going to have. But you carry that around and it plagues you. It, it messes up every decision that you make about your future. You might be suffering from losing your job or struggling to survive in your business. And it's difficult. You might be suffering through being misrepresented or deceived. You might be suffering through being... Um, a person who feels helpless in your family, that your voice doesn't count, whatever you say, doesn't have, anything, doesn't have any impact on the decisions of the family. You might be suffering the agony of helplessness when your family is in need. Where's the money going to come from? And you say to yourself, it's okay if I suffer, but I don't want to see my wife or my children suffering. You might be suffering from the pressure of tight academic deadlines. And it just seems there's too much to do and you can't get there. It's not possible. I can't do this. You might be suffering through finding purpose, meaning and motivation in your life. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What drives you on and on to achieve or to just sit down and say, it's too much? You might be suffering through the sadness of death. And you know that's why I'm preaching here today because Andre and Carlene have gone away to the funeral of a family member. And so many people in our church have gone through the sorrow of losing loved ones over these last couple of months and even right now in this week. You might be suffering through the sadness of death as a person in a medical capacity who's seeing people dying one after the other in the hospitals at this time. I remember, I used to see that when I was working as a paramedic. Nothing would discourage me more than seeing people dying and dying and dying and dying one after the other. And that was the thing that bothered me more than anything else. And the sad thing about the suffering, what your voice is telling you, is that there's no way out. I cannot opt out of this. Sometimes people say to me, I feel like I'm ready to give up. You know, I, I'm at the point where I can't take any more and I think I'm just going to give up. And I say to them, what does giving up look like? Let's say you're sitting here and you're overwhelmed by this pressure. What does giving up look like? And in actual fact, you realize that you do have to get up and go to the toilet next time you have a need. You do have to eat some food next time you're feeling hungry. You do have to sleep when you're feeling tired. You do have to face the challenges around you because you don't get to opt out of suffering in this world, do you? Suffering is a fact. 
giving up is, is not a solution because giving up means just going on with a sense that I've been defeated. It's not an option. You suffer more like that, don't you? So I encourage you to think, if you're going to say, I feel like giving up. What does giving up look like? Does that mean suddenly you come into a place of peace where none of the pressures are on you anymore and then everything's fine? There's no such place in this fallen world. How do we know that? Firstly, because this world is under the curse of sin. The whole world is messed up by sin. All the principles of nature, lions are eating antelope, tearing animals, tearing each other to pieces and eating them. Everything in this entire created order is messed up. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we read God cursing the ground because of Adam, this whole natural order, where he says, Cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil, through painful toil, you will eat all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Through painful toil, you will eat all the days of your life. Do you get to opt out of that? Nobody gets to opt out of the painful toil of living in a fallen world. Romans 8 verse 22, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Sometimes at night I listen to the sounds of the city and I think the best way to describe these sounds is the sounds of groaning. You hear people driving up and down in their cars. You hear dogs barking. You know, you hear hums, you know, of things like generators and machines and this sort of noise level that's just going on all the time. And you think this whole system is just grinding and groaning and struggling on a daily basis just to keep moving. You know what it's like climbing out of bed in the morning. The window, the sun is shining through a window and the window's dirty and you think, oh, I must wash that window one day. Not now. It's just too much to just get out of bed, wash my face again. Go back to work. Get back on that taxi. Through painful toil, you will eat all the days of your life. So you don't get to opt out of this. This is the challenge. You know that guy, Desmond Doss, when he went to volunteer, he was actually in a situation where he had been on a mission before, so he had the right, he had the privilege of opting out of that mission. They would, have, they would have given him an honorable discharge, but he chose to go in. He chose to suffer. He put himself in the suffering. But us, on this battlefield, in this fallen world, we have no opt-out. We don't have the privilege. We don't have the right. There's no opportunity for you and I to opt out of this suffering. So that's the first reason, because the world is sin-cursed. The entire created order, God has subjected it to frustration and is going to grind like a gearbox with no oil. Just going to keep grinding and grinding and grinding until that moment where the Lord Jesus Christ returns and restores the glory to this created order. The second reason why you don't get to opt out is because you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you know that suffering is 
part and parcel with a Christian life because you are living in a God-hating world. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ explains to his disciples in the upper room. You remember before he was crucified. He told them that they're living in a hostile world. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So there's, there's a hostility involved in being a, a Christian person, a soft, gentle Christian person like this Desmond Doss guy. And I'm, I'm not saying he was a Christian person. I'm saying he was a small, soft, gentle man on a battlefield. He went in to suffer for his, for his cause, the thing that was driving him. And for you and I, we are being sent like doves among wolves. We, we're going out into a horrible, horrible, harsh, difficult, prickly environment. And you walk around there feeling like a dove among wolves, like you're going to be chowed at any moment. And that's part and parcel of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4:12, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal for a Christian person. You're going to suffer in a sin-cursed world and you're going to suffer because you're a Christian person in a God-hating world. Everything is going to be stacked against you. It is going to be difficult. As it were, you're going to be running into enemy fire all the time. You're going to be blown up and be hit by the shrapnel of grenades, if I can use the metaphor. You're going to be hit by a Japanese bullet and have your arm broken. You are going to suffer for the rest of your life in some form or other because simply because you're a child of God. Do you get to opt out of that? I don't want to. If, if, you know, if relieving myself from suffering means I have to opt out of being a child of God, which is impossible, I choose suffering. Absolutely, I choose a life of suffering if it means that I retain sonship before God. What an absolute privilege. So it's clear that we're not going to opt out. It's clear that suffering is here to stay. It's clear that all of these different forms of suffering and many, many, many more are yours and eyes to stay, yours and mine to stay, just like it was with Desmond Doss as he came out of the war and he suffered for the rest of his life from the injuries he suffered there. So we've had a look at the Battle of Okinawa and we've seen Desmond Doss fighting there against enemy territory enemy fire we've, we've moved on to have a look having a look at his suffering there going into enemy fire we've moved on to have a look at some of the suffering that you and I experience just like the suffering he experienced when he went into battle and he had to live the rest of his life with his battle injuries and now we can turn our attention for a moment to some other kind of suffering what suffering comes to mind immediately when you think of this great theme of suffering and glory, that there is glory in righteous suffering. Of course, we're going to go to the weight of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great hero, the glorious champion of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's touch for a moment on the suffering, the weight of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you feel the weight of your own suffering, let's look at the weight of the suffering of the Lord Jesus so you remember two weeks ago, Andre preached on the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ from Philippians chapter 2. And as I, was, as I was studying for this particular sermon, as Andre said, he's going to go to be with his family for this funeral. He asked me to preach today and I said, definitely. And then I started thinking, what am I going to say? 
And I started thinking about all kinds of ideas from the New Testament. Oh, I really want to preach this. Oh, I want to preach that. Oh, I want to preach that. And then some texts started coming to mind and I thought, oh, I'm going to preach on 1 Peter. But you know me, how can I preach a whole book? You know, like six chapters of 1 Peter. And I'm like, okay, well, let me speak on this one theme in 1 Peter. And then I discovered as I was studying 1 Peter that... Peter mentions this concept of suffering and glory 16 different times. He uses a couple of different terms to describe it. But 16 times he mentions suffering and glory in 1 Peter. And then if you study those 16 occurrences more clearly, you find out that they can be grouped into five smaller groups of texts. And the word that theologians use is pericopes or pericopes, depending on how you like to read that word, pericope or pericope. Did I write it there? No, I didn't. Whatever. If you like the word, use it. If you don't, too bad. A group of verses, a small little group of verses, a pericope or a pericope. Um, So there's there's five groups of verses that speak specifically about this, that, that describe suffering and glory in more detail. So I thought, all right, let me look at these 16 occurrences. Then I thought, no, how can I preach on 16 different texts? That's crazy. Then I thought, okay, let me look at these five groups of verses that have to do with suffering. Then I thought, no, how am I going to preach five groups of verses? So the more I looked, I realized that while Peter is teaching on suffering and glory, what he's doing is he's going back to the Old Testament prophets. And, you know, for example, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, He describes how all of the things that he's speaking about comes flowing out of the Old Testament. And he he shows the sort of the breath of the Old Testament coming into the New Testament. And what he's quoting predominantly is the servant songs. He's speaking about the servant of Jehovah throughout Isaiah's prophecies. You know, the servant songs. Absolutely beautiful. I've preached them before. If you want to hear about the servant songs, you can go find them on Sermon Audio. Beautiful, beautiful texts of Scripture. Maybe one day God will give me the chance to preach through them again. But out of those servant songs, the final servant song about the servant of Jehovah, who is the Messiah, the Son of God, the the glorious, glorious one who's going to come, the final servant song is Isaiah 53. Beautiful, beautiful grand finale out of all of those servant songs that describe the servant of Jehovah in the Old Testament. And Peter... He actually quotes Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter. And I was like, that's where I'm going to go. We're going to have a look. Just skim over the theme of Isaiah 53. Of course, you can tell we're not going to get anywhere except for mostly reading the text. So let's just read through Isaiah 53. Let's think about this. Let's just move slowly through Isaiah 53 and think about the weight of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of Jehovah, and see what it looked like for the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer in this way. This, doesn't, this is not all of his sufferings that are presented in the servant songs. Some of the servant songs have to do with his day-to-day life in this world. God becoming man, you know, restricting himself to a human form, having to be, imagine God having to be in one place at a time. God being only being able to speak to a certain amount of people at the same time because his voice is you know is limited not like before 
you know, when he existed in that form and he, he had unrestricted use of all of his attributes, he still had his attributes, but he chose to restrict himself to the, the complete human experience. So when God spoke, only a few people would hear his voice. Amazing. All the suffering that comes with that, getting tired and God getting tired. You know, God becoming weary and hot and walking on human feet. Imagine that. So he suffered a lot. But here's the final servant song, beginning in chapter 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Already in that preamble to this text, you can see the themes of suffering and glory. Imagine kings, these proud rulers, just taking one look at Jesus Christ and they've got nothing to say. They're so stunned by his glory that they're speechless. Even Pharaoh, the proud Pharaoh, you remember when Moses approached him and says, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who's the Lord that I should obey him? the greatest and most powerful ruler on the face of the earth at that time has still got something to say in the face of the Lord. But the day is going to come when kings will shut their mouths because of this great Savior, the great Lord Jesus Christ. But what comes before that is his marring in verse 14. He was marred beyond human likeness, smashed and ruined and beaten Verse 50, uh, chapter 53, verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This powerful work of God. Who has seen this? All we saw, verse 2, is he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. God being the most glorious being in the universe and infinitely beyond. Comes into this world just like a weed growing out between paving. That we just walk on and no one even notices it. God in human flesh. Not noticeable. How many times do you and I do something... And nobody thanks us for it. And we're like, no one even thanked me for that. God comes into the world. He grows up like a weed between paving stones. And people walk on him. And he doesn't say, no one even noticed what I did. The greatest feat in all this world. The greatest humility we've ever seen. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. This, this nobody, this ordinary man that everybody knows, suddenly he comes out with his claim, I am God. Like, stop it, man. You know, are you mad? You're just an ordinary man. Now you're claiming to be God. And he never makes this great display. He never tries to prove people wrong. He allows people to misrepresent him, to see him as something infinitely smaller than what he really is. And in that, there's glory. Don't you respect somebody? Let's say, let's say you're busy doing a, a degree in something or other. And you're so impressed because it's your first degree and you're learning stuff that you've never learned before and you meet a stranger and this person, you're trying to tell them how amazing this is. Yo, I've been learning these things and you're trying to impress them with the stuff you're learning. And you realize that that person has a PhD in that very topic, that very subject, in that very field. And you're like, ooh, do I feel small. <laughs> Suddenly you feel like a little idiot, you know, like a worm. You want to crawl away. But imagine people standing and looking at Jesus and he doesn't do that to him. You know, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Come on. Jesus doesn't say, you know, like come up in flames of fire, you know, like at the transfiguration and terrify them so they run. I mean, he could have done that. He could have just given them one glimpse. But he doesn't. He walks around. They, nobody esteems him. We despise him. And he's carrying our infirmities. Like this Desmond, um, Desmond, what's his name? Doss, Desmond Doss, in that battlefield, carrying up those men who were mocking him and, and attacking him, beating him, and excluding him. Jesus comes into this world, taking up our infirmities and carrying our sorrows. And we thought he was stricken by God, like it's your own fault that you're suffering. You're stupid for coming in here. That's what his fellow soldiers thought, and that's what the Jews thought of Jesus, and that's what many people still think of Jesus. Mocking him. He was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? Didn't even leave children. His mission looked, such, looked like such a failure to the human eye. He comes in, claims to be God. He dies. Oh well. I guess he tried to be a hero, didn't he? That's what some would say. No children. 
for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that he'd done no wrong, he was a righteous man. In spite of that, verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. There's our word, suffer. The Lord himself causes him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We just read, who can speak of his descendants? He didn't even have children. But the day is going to come when he's going to say, Here are my children. Here's my child. Here's my child. Here's my child. Here's my child. And here from Living Hope Church, the day is going to come when you and I stand together and the great Lord Jesus Christ is going to point to you and me and you and you and he's going to say, You my child and this is my child and this is my child. Who can speak of his descendants? Well, here they are. You thought I failed. What a weight the Lord Jesus Christ bore going through his entire life. If you read, if you understand the servant songs, you realize that even the Messiah in the servant songs says, Surely I've spent myself in vain. My whole, it's been pointless my whole life. I've just grown up doing nothing. My three and a half years in ministry, I've got 12 disciples. Then I die. It's like, what am I even doing? There's no revolution coming about here. Servant songs are, are hugely stirring. Absolutely beautiful. So you can see why Peter has the servant songs in the background of his letter when he speaks about suffering and glory. Why is it that we find the weight of the Lord Jesus Christ's sufferings stirring and difficult to hear? It's because we know that there's glory attached to suffering. We don't want to see him suffer, but we do want to see the glory. We want to see the outcome. If, if God incarnate suffers in this way, there must be a glorious plan that is coming. God must be planning something absolutely wonderful. So we just touched here on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus through the servant songs. And you'll notice right at the end of that Isaiah 53 and verse 11, you see this huge big turning point beginning to take place. A short little turning point, a short little tale in the psalm. The whole, I mean, the whole prophecy of Isaiah, the whole servant song, is about the suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of the servant of Jehovah. And then suddenly, right at the end, you've got two little verses that speak about his exaltation. And those two little verses are massive. I think one of the reasons that a prophecy like this is structured like that is because when we live in this world, suffering is the only thing that we can see. It becomes so consuming that we can't see outside of the boundaries of this. But what he's saying as he concludes this prophecy here in verse 11 is that there's something that we've completely missed if that's all you see in your suffering. If all you see in your suffering is the difficulty and the hardship and the effort that you have to expend on a daily basis just to survive, there's more. What is the more? And I want to tell you, just as a footnote before I read this, 
Do you want to know, over 20 years of counseling, what the number one problem I find in people is? This one thing. If you can understand this one thing, you'd never end up coming to me for counseling. That there is glory in suffering. There's glory attached to suffering. Yes, you're suffering. But while you're suffering, there's glory attached to your suffering. In God's world, there's glory attached to suffering. I'm saying that again and again because I don't want you to forget it. When you feel you're suffering, remember, this is painful. There's glory attached to the suffering. There's glory attached to righteous suffering. We see it here in verse 11 of Isaiah 53. And after the suffering of his soul... He will see, and the NIV says, the light of life and be satisfied. But of course the Hebrew doesn't say it in in that way. He will see, literally, basically what he's saying here, is that he will see the results of his suffering. Look at what has happened as a result of my suffering. He will see that. He will look and he'll say, Ah, this is wonderful. He will see the result of his suffering and be satisfied. You realize that the more you suffer in this life, the more unsatisfied you become. Hey, You think, my life has gone on 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe 60, 70 years, and it's not getting any better. I'm not achieving my dreams or my goals, and I become less satisfied with my life. As I go on, I have this defeatist attitude. Oh, well, I had great plans for my life, but they didn't happen, so here I sit. But for him... He lives a life that in the servant songs is portrayed as a waste of time. But it's the glory, it's the glory, it's the glory that comes as a result of his sufferings that brings him to a point where he says, Ah, this changes everything. Now I'm satisfied. I can see now how all of my suffering brought me to the point where glory is the norm. I've come into glory. I've come into something wonderful. I'm absolutely satisfied. What would it take for you and I to sit here today and say, I'm absolutely satisfied? You might be content, but you might not be able to say, I'm satisfied with this. And the suffering servant, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the result of his suffering and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, so there's the righteous servant, it was righteous response to suffering, my righteous servant will justify many. Isn't that the theme that we've been talking about week after week after week here at Living Hope Church? Justification through faith. And here's the suffering servant. Where does he find all of his joy? That he is justifying you, he's justifying you, he's justifying you, and in that he's satisfied. I have Alan with me forever and ever, and I'm happy with that. I can't understand that, but he's satisfied. He finds joy, he finds contentment in the fact that even though his whole life, especially at the end of his life, was a life of suffering and pain and agony, he says, this makes it all go away. The glory makes it all go away. This is wonderful. I don't know if this excites you. I don't know if this brings joy to your heart that there's glory in your suffering. It's not just suffering. It's attached to glory. So the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior, by His knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and He will bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. War imagery. That's why I took you to a battlefield earlier today. War imagery. He's going to tell battle stories. He's going to say, that was hard. That was hard. That was hard. I'm telling you, that was not easy. But I'm satisfied now. He will divide the spoils. He'll enjoy the rewards of all of that suffering. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He suffered for me. As I suffer, I remember Jesus' suffering connected to Jesus' glory. And I say, there is glory in my suffering. It doesn't feel glorious, but there's glory attached to responding to suffering in a godly way. I'm hoping that encourages you. As I was preparing this, I couldn't even contain myself. I was thinking, this is so amazing, man. This is what I counsel. If you come to me for counseling and you're suffering, at some point I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to explain this. And I might explain it in a very animated way. You know, I might have you thinking, yeah, this guy's crazy. You know, what's moving him? Did he drink too much coffee? But I'm telling you, I'm going to explain this to you at some time if you come to me and you're suffering. I'm going to talk about how glory is attached to the suffering. And I'm going to help you to see, depending on the Holy Spirit, to open your eyes to see this in everyday life. Oh, yes, this is hard, but there's glory, there's glory, there's glory. And that gives you hope. So he's going to see the suffering of his soul. He's going to see the the results of his suffering, and he's going to be satisfied. Let's move on on that note to the glory in Jesus' sufferings. What is the glory that Jesus has received? What has come to him? What is he enjoying right now as he's reigning at the right hand of the Father, as he sits on the throne of God? What is the glory in Jesus' suffering? On the battlefield, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and suffered, and he sustained injuries that way surpass the injuries of our hero, Desmond Doss. I mean, he was blown up in a Japanese hand grenade. He was shot and his arm got broken by a Japanese bullet. And they saw him die on the cross and they saw him buried. And he's been in the tomb until the third day and he comes out. They can't believe they've seen their friend and their Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And after 40 days of ministering to his disciples here on earth with his pierced hands and his pierced side and his pierced feet, and probably the wounds from the crown of thorns that was pressed down on his face, and probably the the marks from where he was scourged on his back, and probably with all of the marks on his face from being punched and beaten by the soldiers, faint, but there as a reminder of his sufferings, we see the great Lord Jesus ascending into the presence of his Father. Now just imagine those moments. Imagine the moments. The whole of heaven is gathering, waiting for this one moment. This is the first time this has ever happened in in the glory of God's kingdom. That God has become man and he has died for his people who hated him. And he has ascended to glory, drawing all of those people with him. The whole of heaven is astir. All of the angels are waiting. 
They, they're wriggling their feet on the spot, waiting for the moment when they see their Savior burst into glory, having accomplished the mission of the Father. The Father is there waiting for the moment when His beloved Son comes into His presence bearing those scars, having suffered, having the marks of suffering on Him everywhere. And the Father can say to Him again, Oh, my Son, the one that I love, the one that I'm well pleased with, the one that I'm satisfied in, now that you are home, everything's going to be okay. You can imagine the Father with all of the riches and the glory surrounding His throne, all of the eternal joys, waiting for the moment His, His Son ascends into that glorious place. And the angels begin to shout with joy. The father begins to say, my son has come home. And you see that moment as the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the cheers of those angels. The power, the thunder, you can imagine the glory as the angels with tears in their eyes are moved by the glory that is in the suffering of this one man. This perfect man who suffered righteously. And as he walks along the hallways of heaven to the thunderous applause, you can see people's mouths moving, but you can't hear what they're saying because everybody's just over the moon. They're so overjoyed that they've seen this great and glorious champion. As that human being, that perfect human being, walks the corridors of heaven, there are people looking at him. There are people, there's human eyes, people who have been brought into glory from the time of Abel. They rejoice him because he has just purchased their place in heaven. And they've been there for thousands of years already. They're looking at a man who embodies the compassion of God. Who went in there to do it? They ran into enemy fire to rescue these people who are God's enemies. They see the mercy and the grace and the patience of God embodied in this one man. One look in his eye and you know that he loves you beyond anything you can imagine. You see the faithfulness of God. You see Him actually going all the way to the end and actually accomplishing the mission and rising to glory and say, I have done it. I have accomplished the work that the Father sent me to do. And there's pride in that for Him. There's glory in that for Jesus Christ. And there's glory in the Father's heart as He lavishes that glory on His Son and He gives Him the name as Andre was preaching that is above every name. Glorious glorious moment was the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ worth it of course would Jesus want to opt out of that no never he wanted of course his suffering was not pleasant it's not pleasant to be nailed to a cross but he wanted to do that he said your will not my will in his human frailty he surpasses Desmond Doss I mean, Desmond Doss had military training for months before he even went into battle. Jesus comes in as a perfect man, defenseless. He has no weapons. He's got nothing to defend himself. When he's reviled, he doesn't turn back and, and accuse people. He's misrepresented. He doesn't defend himself in any way. And he allows himself to be killed by his enemies. So in his frailty, he surpasses our hero, Desmond Doss. And he also, in his glory, he surpasses any hero that this world has ever seen. In fact, I want to tell you, one of the things that's really annoyed me while I've been doing studies over the years, and I've tried to find stories of heroes like this, 
You, I, I dare you to do this. You go and Google hero, you know, like all of those themes that you try and Google to find some awesome hero story. And again and again and again, you're going to read a story about some guy who saved a cat or a dog or, you know, a mouse or something, you know, a duck across the road, you know, hero. But to find a real hero story, you have to look at the Bible. You have to look at Jesus Christ. And he surpasses every single human hero that this world has ever seen. And he lives a life of courage that is unparalleled. He is unmatched. There's not a single man who comes anywhere close to the masculinity and the glory in suffering that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. He endures his suffering knowing that glory is waiting for him. You remember, he's going to come into his father's presence and bring glory to his father. And at the same time as he's bringing glory to his father, he's bringing all of that as good to you and I. He's drawing us into that glory. For him, it's like, yeah, that's what I accomplished. What a glorious thing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he bringing glory to his father, as the angels stare at him in wonder, but he's bringing that as good to you. All of that comes to you as a believer in the Lord Jesus. The reward that the Lord Jesus Christ receives cannot even be compared, of course, to the Congressional Medal of Honor that our hero received. He gets the, the president of one of the superpowers of the world to give him a medal and to shake his hand. Wow, the president gave me a medal. The highest medal in this country. Woo! <laughs> Here we see Jesus. Celebrated by God. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, standing in front of his Father. And the Father gives him glory and honor like this world has never seen. He is received with overwhelming joy by his Father. He is worshipped by the mightiest angels. He is worshipped by every saint who has already been received into glory throughout history. Who has been purchased by his blood. Look at the end of Hebrews chapter 12. I absolutely love the end of Hebrews chapter 12 where you see that massive crescendo, the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn to the souls of men made perfect. At the sight of him, this glorious man, Daniel cannot breathe. Daniel 10, 17. At the sight of this man, John who was the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, he used to lie on his chest and eat food with him. So idyllic. When, G when John sees him in his glorified state, he falls down like a dead man. In Revelation 1.17. The heavenly beings never stop day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they look at him and they're in awe 24-7. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. He is the satisfied sin bearer. What a glorious title. I have borne sin, I have suffered, I have been accused as if I was you, the sinner. And now I'm satisfied because I've paid. The cost is on me and I'm happy. I'm happy that my credit card was maxed out for you. I'll bear the cost. You enjoy all of the good things I've bought for you. 
He's the satisfied sin bearer. I know there's some kids looking for words today. Sin bearer. He is the compassionate pain healer. Wiping the tears from every eye and removing death, mourning, crying, pain forever and ever and ever. What would you do in your suffering if you knew that if I respond in a godly way to this suffering, it's going to lead to all of my tears and my sorrow being taken away forever and ever and ever? You would say, ah, oh, that's a good deal. Yes, I can respond in a godly way in this moment. I don't know about the next moment. Right now, I can respond in a godly way. And then when the next moment comes, you say, ah, oh, I can do this moment too. I'll respond in a godly way. What a wonderful incentive this is. He is the generous joy bringer who floods his people with his own quality of life and joy forever and ever and ever. Psalm 16 11, 11. remember, there's, there's glorious, majestic, beautiful, wonderful, satisfying things around the throne of God all the time. When you come to the throne of God, the things that have been purchased, the, the loveliness that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for you are there all the time. They're synonymous with him. He is the bringer of eternal joy and satisfaction and safety. What would you do for eternal safety as a lady? What joy would it bring you? You say, I'm safe. I don't have to worry anymore. What would you do? Would you respond in a godly way to suffering? You say, well, if that's what it takes, let me do that. Let me do that because this is going to contribute to the state where I'm, in, when, where I'm safe forever and ever. It encourages me, man. It encourages me in my suffering to see what the Lord Jesus Christ, the rewards, the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has received. He becomes the rightful ruler of the entire created order. Remember Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 were read just now. How he receives this glorious name in Philippians chapter 2 that is above every name. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the results of his suffering and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. Notice that word, because. He poured his life out into death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There's glory, glory, glory for him as the righteous ruler because he has suffered. A direct result of his righteous responses to his suffering, his ruling forever over the entire created order and a new world is coming. A new and glorious world where you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ reign in glory with the Lord Jesus. We receive His glory. So why do we find this thrilling? Why do we find it thrilling that as the Lord Jesus Christ suffers, He's ascended into glory. We find this thrilling because we see and we know that in God's world, suffering and glory are directly connected. People who suffer in a righteous way are glorified. Just like our hero, Desmond Doss, who goes into enemy fire on the battlefield at risk of his life. He goes and he faces the enemy even when his own friends are his enemies. And he goes through the suffering and he rescues and rescues at 
at huge sacrifice, even to the point where his own body is messed up for life, we know that there's glory attached to that. And that brings me such joy and satisfaction to know that I can tell you today that in your suffering there's glory attached. What glory is attached to your suffering? Let's look at that for a moment. How can there possibly be glory? Sometimes somebody will say to me something like, how can there be glory in this or that or that? And they will mention something terrible that happens in the world. And I will think to myself, man, I wish you could see it. How could there be any glory in God becoming a man and being murdered? How could there be glory in that? Is there something you're missing if you miss that? No, there's glory in it. In God's economy, there's glory in Jesus' suffering and there's glory in your suffering. What glory is there? Well, firstly, let's have a look at the first aspect of the glory in your suffering. The first aspect is that glory in your suffering as you suffer righteously, it is a fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has united Himself to you. If you're a true believer, you are in union with Christ and every bit of glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has earned as the perfect man and the glorious hero is your glory as well. You look at Hebrews 2, for example, you study Hebrews chapter 2, and you find out that Jesus is the representative of all of his people. And everything that Jesus Christ owns, everything that Jesus Christ has earned as a human being, becomes the possession of you and me as believers in the Lord Jesus. Man, that was an easy way to be glorified, wasn't it? Somebody else earned it. Somebody else became a hero, and I get all of the glory. Unbelievable. The gospel is an unbelievable reality. It's a fact that in, in union with Christ, you receive the glory that Christ has earned. Christ is your victory. Christ is your exaltation. Every bit of victory that he earned is, is your victory. Every exaltation he earns is your exaltation. Romans 8.17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, oh, there's this line, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We are suffering. You don't opt out of suffering. So what is he saying? You respond to your sufferings in a godly way and you will share in the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has earned. Guys, you don't even need 50 bucks for this. You don't need to accomplish something massive in this world. You just have to become aware of the fact that I'm suffering and say, God help me to respond in a godly way to this moment while I'm suffering. That's it. And you are received into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. What an unbelievable reality. Not only that, but it's a fact that God is glorified when He glorifies you. He takes somebody who is absolutely hopeless, somebody who is absolutely incapable, somebody who is His enemy, and He turns you by His grace, through the gospel, by the power of His Spirit, He turns you into something glorious. And you stand and you look in the mirror when you're in glory and you say, God, how did you do it? How did you make me into this? I can't believe it. Even if God made me into an angel, I'd be amazed. But He's going to make me like Jesus. He's going to be like, I'm going to be like the Son of God. 
shining like the sun forever and ever. Can you believe that? When you look at me, a weasel like me, can you believe I'm going to shine with the glory of God? <laughs> I tell you, it's a fact that when God glorifies you, glory comes to Him as, as the one who has done that, who's done the glorifying. He's brought you into this glory as a trophy of His grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, it's not only a fact that you are united with Christ and therefore you will receive His glory as a child of God. Secondly, in practice, every tiny godly response to suffering, let me say that again, every tiny godly response to suffering, firstly, glorifies God and secondly, brings you specific eternal reward. God will reward you for every single moment that nobody else was aware of. You're driving your car, some hooligan cuts you off or something and you feel angry and then you say to yourself, no, I'm not going to respond to this in this way. I'm going to honor God in this. I'm going to pray for this guy. God, please have mercy on this guy. He's driving like a hooligan. You know, I was angry. Forgive me for being angry. And in that moment, there's a reward that God is going to give you for that one single moment of a godly response to suffering and that reward is going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. There's never going to be a time for the rest of eternity where you will not enjoy the satisfaction of that reward. It's an unbelievable deal, this. It's unbelievable. Hebrews 11.6 says that true faith is convinced that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That's a part of true faith. How do I know that I'm a person who has true faith? I absolutely believe that God is going to reward me. He lavishes good things on me. That's, a, that's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? In fact, that as a believer, there will be eternal glory specifically attached to righteous suffering, and that brings joy in your suffering right now. It's funny how sometimes when I explain this to somebody... They will say to me, okay, I know there's glory coming, but what about right now? And I say, this has got every bit to do with right now. This is about now. Suffering is about now. That means glory is about now. This is the thing that is bringing about the glory. It's like working at work and you're saying, okay, I'm busy filling in the spreadsheet for my employer. But, ah, you know... What am I going to do, you know, till I get my salary? This is earning your salary. This is bringing the salary in. And it's amazing how we can lose sight of it. Because suffering is painful, we can lose sight of the fact that glory and suffering are inextricably con connected with each other in God's economy. And I can go through suffering, and immediately when I become aware of suffering, I can say to myself, you know what, there's more to this than just the pain. Like Jesus could say, there's more to this than just the pain. Remember um, Hebrews 12, 3, where he says, Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down, the right hand, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What moved Jesus on in his suffering? What about the now for Jesus? As he's hanging on the cross, what was the now for him? 
Yes, he knew he would be glorified after he died. But for the now, it was for the joy that was set before him. That's driving him. That's moving him. I'm going to see my father. The pleasure on my father's face is going to be so worth it when I see his satisfaction in what I've done. I've accomplished this absolutely perfectly. And you know, when you or I stand before God, if I die right now and I stand in front of God, I'm going to see the same look in the face of God that he looked, that he had on his face when he looked at Jesus coming into his glory with that delight, that joy. This is my son, this is beautiful. You know, I don't know if God can cry, but, you know, make him want to cry because this is so beautiful. Everlasting praise. Do you want that? I mean, you want praise in this world, don't you? We struggle so much to get people to praise us. We even say things like, oh yeah, you know, I'm not really good at that. Knowing that the other person can say, no, you're really good. Nah, really, honestly, I'm not that good. No, you're the best I've seen. <laughs> I mean, we fish for, fish for compliments wherever you go. But imagine actual, real, authentic, everlasting praise to you because of something God did in you. Isn't that astounding? God makes me glorious. And then God praises me. He lavishes praise on me forever and ever and ever. Everlasting glory. Do you want everlasting glory? Everlasting honor. Everlasting joy. Imagine never not being joyful. Forever and ever and ever. Imagine never having a bad day. Everlasting joy. Everlasting life. Everlasting authority, everlasting meaning, everlasting purpose, everlasting motivation, everlasting passion. All I'm saying is you cannot lose when you respond to suffering in a godly way. I'm saying that the moment you become alerted to the fact that you have an opportunity to suffer in a godly way is when you feel the pain of suffering. You know, you can put this, you can install this little light on the dashboard inside of your head somewhere that when pain comes, the light comes on. Beep, beep, beep. Oh, what does that light mean? Opportunity, opportunity, opportunity is knocking here. I'm feeling bad, I'm suffering. You know what that means? You know what that means? This is an opportunity for glory, everlasting glory. You say to yourself, oh, if this is an opportunity, how must I respond? God help me in this suffering. God help me to respond well. God help me to do this well. God help me to be motivated by eternal glory rather than just, you know, trying to get more comfortable in this world. Escaping pain. The pain of suffering must remind you that there's glory in your suffering. I'm going to just finish off before this little short conclusion with a quote from a lady called Chelsea Patterson Soberlink. I don't know if you've read her. She wrote a, a blog on the Gospel Coalition uh, website. So one little quote from her that is great. She says, when we respond to suffering, uh, when we respond to suffering well, we practically demonstrate to the unbelieving world that Christ is more glorious and precious to us than any pain and difficulty we might endure. When we respond to suffering well, we practically demonstrate to the unbelieving world that Christ is more glorious and precious to us 
than any pain and difficulty we might endure. So for Desmond Doss on the battlefield, it was absolutely worth, for some reason, it was absolutely worth running into enemy fire in order to rescue fellow soldiers who hated him. Even if he became permanently injured, you know, injured permanently or killed in the line of duty, he was willing to do that. He was on a battlefield and he received glory for the rest of his life as a result of the fact that he was a hero. For the Lord Jesus Christ, it was worth becoming a man forever, coming into this battlefield in the world as a man to suffer and bleed and die was worth it because he anticipated entering into the unspeakable joy of pleasing his father in a perfect heroic mission drawing human souls into glory forever. For you and I, it is absolutely worth the suffering on this battlefield because we are enduring until we win the prize that Christ has called us to. We will really have eternal glory. We will see it. We'll see the results of our suffering and we will be satisfied. Lord, please help us today. Help us to do a thing that is so unnatural for us in our fallen state. In our sinful state, Lord, we look at suffering and we say, no, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. This is too difficult. I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. But Lord, I pray that you would help us today just to take this one single truth from your word that is everywhere, throughout the Bible, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the New Testament. Lord, help us again and again and again while we are suffering in our real day-to-day sufferings. Help us to remember that there's glory attached to our suffering, just as there was glory attached to Jesus' suffering. And please help us, Lord, help us again and again to respond well in a godly way to suffering. And I pray, Lord, that in a coming day when each one of us who have been called to yourself by your grace, we pray, Lord, that we would be able to look at each other and say, oh, yes, it was absolutely worth the suffering, absolutely worth every little bit, absolutely worth pressing on with a godly response to suffering. Lord, I pray that you would do that in each one of our hearts today. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.